Then got this shit knocking. Welcome back to Doctors and Litigation, the L Word. This is a special episode to talk about the Redonda Vought verdict. I know I've been promising the final episode in this series for a really long while, and I will get back to that. But in the meantime, I have gotten a lot of correspondence about the recent Redonda Vought verdict, and I'm recording this in April of 2022, so Ms. Vought has not yet been sentenced. But the verdict was enough to really shake the core of medical professionals after Nurse Vaught was found guilty of negligent homicide in the accidental death of Charlene Murphy in 2017 caused by a horrific medication error. As you know, medical malpractice cases are normally handled in civil court, where it's money on the line, not jail time. Sometimes the state might get involved and a healthcare provider could lose their license. But in this case, in this case, the nurse involved in the care of a patient was charged criminally with negligent homicide for administering the wrong medication to a patient, resulting in death. This is a horrible, horrible case, resulting in the death of a patient and the unfathomable grief of a family who knows their loved one died a terrible, preventable death alone. But the question is resounding through medicine now. Is this the start of the criminalization of unintentional medical error and adverse events? To sort through some of these thoughts, I turned to Mark Calvert, a medical malpractice defense attorney based in Houston, Texas. Here's our conversation. Mark, thank you so much for coming to talk about this with me today. You want to tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself? My name is Mark Calvert. I live in the outskirts of Houston, Texas. I went to the University of Texas Law School and uh, got out in 1987 and have been uh, defending healthcare providers ever since. So this is my 35th year. Uh, I believe that uh, healthcare providers are the greatest profession with uh, physicians leading the pack. And it's my honor to be able to to help them and defend them and guide them. And uh, that's what I've done. I'm board certified. Uh, all I do is is work with um, those who provide health care, uh, whether it's lawsuits, board actions, peer review, even contracts and questions like that. So that's my, uh, that's my niche. Well, thank you so much for what you do. You know, it's very near and dear to my heart. I just want to start off by talking about the events for any listeners who might not know exactly what happened. So here is the timeline as best I understand it. So Redonda Vaught was a nurse who was working in the ICU at Vanderbilt. And in December of 2017, the patient named Charlene Murphy was admitted to the neuro ICU for a head bleed. I think it was a subdural hematoma. Two days later, Ms. Murphy was improving and was sent for a repeat scan in radiology. And Redonda Vaught was working as the help all nurse in the neuro ICU at the time, Um, I think that means that she was a bit of a float and kind of doing all sorts of different jobs and at the same time was training another nurse. And she was sent to take this patient to radiology for her repeat scan. Versed, also known as midazolam, but Versed is what we're going to call it here for a reason you'll see in a moment. Versed was ordered for the patient for claustrophobia before her scan. And when Nurse Vaught took the patient to radiology, realized the patient needed Versed. She went to the Pixis in the radiology department and typed in VE for Versed, and it didn't come up. Now, this is in the setting of the EMR, having not been operating normally in the weeks before, where orders weren't interfacing correctly with pharmacy, and so she just thought this was another thing she had to override. She did an override function, which gave her access to a a wider array of drugs, and she typed in VE again, and now a drawer pops open. But unfortunately, this 
drug was not Versed. It was Vecuronium, which is a powerful paralytic agent that we use when we're intubating people. But Nurse Vought had to ignore several pop-up warnings. She ignored the fact that Vecuronium is a powder that needs to be reconstituted. Uh, there was a warning on the vial saying that it was a paralytic agent. Um, there was no bracelet scanner available in radiology, which is a lot of times another safety thing. And normally for a drug like Vecuronium, you're going to need you know, a second nurse to verify. None of those things are available to her. She administers the drug and leaves the patient in the radiology department awaiting her scan. And in the interim, Charlene Murphy, who was administered a dose of a paralytic agent, totally unsupervised, stops breathing. When the radiology tech comes to get her for the scan, it's apparent that she is pulseless and apneic. They call a code. They try to resuscitate her. Um, they were able to resuscitate her, but she suffered anoxic brain injury and then died later in the day. Now, Nurse Vaught was completely overwrought, realized what had happened, discloses her error to everybody, to all important parties in the hospital, explains exactly how it happened, uh, and is beside herself. Now, it turns out that Vanderbilt does not report anything to the state. Uh, they rule this death as a death from natural causes, uh, and they subsequently fire Redonda Vaught. And then in early 2018, they have an out-of-court settlement that they negotiate with the family um, that includes a non-disclosure agreement. And nobody really knows what happened outside of the walls of that hospital until October 2018, an anonymous tipster reports this death as a medication error to the Department of Health. Initially, the Tennessee Department of Health decides not to pursue any disciplinary action against Redonda Vaught. But then in the wake of that, in November of 2018, CMS, Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, conducts a surprise inspection at Vanderbilt in response to that anonymous complaint. And they find out exactly what happened and that things weren't reported the way they were supposed to be. In February of the following year, Vought is arraigned in a criminal case. In September of 2019, the Department of Health reverses their decisions, suspends her nursing license, and then ultimately, after COVID delays, Redondavat went on trial in March of 2022. Uh, at the time we're recording this, just last month, it was a four-day trial, and she was found guilty of gross neglect of an impaired adult and negligent homicide. She will be sentenced in May. So, Mark, like what a what a terrible case for all parties concerned, obviously, first and foremost for this patient and for her family. But I also feel for this nurse who made an error, uh, an error that anybody working with technology and EMARs in the hospital these days can kind of understand. And she disclosed this error herself. Like, what are we, where do we even start with this? It is a tragedy. There's a lot of moving parts here and I've been giving it some, some fairly deep thought because I wanted to be able to have a intelligent conversation with you and, and offer some, some heartfelt and experienced uh, opinions. I'd like to do a little bit of a disclaimer. I, I, I hate to Monday morning quarterback both healthcare and legal effort. And so, you know, obviously the facts that I know are essentially what you've related and, and I've done a little bit of reading and, and looked at some articles. I've watched some YouTube videos. I watched the, at least part of the testimony of the uh, prosecution's expert against uh, Ms. Vaught. I watched a, a couple of short uh, interviews with Ms. Vaught uh, to try to get a little bit more information. So my first disclaimer is I don't think I have all of the details uh, and know all of the different uh, angles and, and layers. Um, next, I would say uh, this this opens up a lot of uh, sensitive areas. And, and I read some of the uh, feedback on the YouTube video I watched where it was a, a nurse that was kind of dissecting it. And, and there was just 
a lot of uh, outcry from healthcare providers, nurses in particular, about what a slippery slope this is and, and the danger and the pressure that it puts on on healthcare providers. And I, I can see that. It's a it's a hell of a mess and a and a very tough situation. Um, and I can I can look at it, I think, from both sides and also offer some legal thoughts. So Mark, most of us as healthcare providers are we're already wary of the threat of civil litigation. But this is a scenario that most healthcare providers would never dream of happening, of being named in a criminal case over a medical error. So I guess my first question is just a practical one. Would malpractice insurance even cover the defense of a criminal case? Like, is that something where a malpractice defense attorney like you would represent us? Or would we need someone with more specific experience in the criminal justice system? I saw that she had a, Redonda Vaught had a GoFundMe for her legal expenses, which makes me feel like she's not adequately covered to defend herself here. So in general, most insurance policies that I have reviewed in, in over three decades uh, specifically exclude providing uh, coverage, meaning paying defense fees and other expenses for intentional and criminal acts. So, uh, for example, I've handled a lot of cases over the years where there's been some boundary violations and the plaintiff's attorneys have to be very, very careful because if they plead the case as some kind of intentional act, say a, a sexual interlude or even assault, it can move it out of being uh, covered by the insurance. Uh, and that's for them to receive money. So the the fee part of it, the the question you're asking is, Hey, if we have a criminal charge brought against us, will our medical malpractice insurance pay for the attorney to defend us? And I think the answer is almost always no, they're not going to cover that. I've had a couple of recent experiences where that's come to, to pass and there's a kind of a criminal angle to the case that's being pursued. A couple of high profile cases actually that are pending right now. And they specifically asked the carrier who was paying my bill to help them in the civil case. And they said, no, we're not going to pay your, your criminal defense attorney that you need to retain to handle, you know, dealing with the grand jury uh, and, and the parallel criminal investigation that's happening. So um, that poses a big problem because in when you've upped the ante like this, and this is high stakes poker, when you move into the criminal realm, uh, I, particularly for a nurse and maybe for most doctors, but this can be a hemorrhage on uh, personal finances and you just almost run out of bullets to be able to, to fight this battle. And so that's kind of adding insult to injury. She probably um, had exhausted uh, uh, money. Wow. So are you, are you hearing from uh, defendants or providers who are worried about this? It sounds like you have some cases that have sort of not, not parallel cases, but you've got some cases with overlap. Like what is the medical malpractice defense legal community saying about this? I think that there's a, you know, a bit of a continuum. Certainly healthcare providers are worried about it and, and a bit outraged, very sensitive about, uh, the environment that they're called upon to work in, the the situations that they have to constantly be in, and that mistakes happen, and and it shouldn't move into the criminal realm. Uh, I have, you know, had some folks tell me they thought that this was grossly out of line, and that if there is anything that should should bring a healthcare provider into the criminal court, it would be this or something near it. Um, and certainly, you know, lay people, you know, I've had, I've had some experiences in the last several years, losing my parents, uh, lost my brother-in-law, um, about, uh, six, eight months ago. Um, and the care was not very good. And so, uh, I, I am an advocate for healthcare providers. I think it's the best profession in the world, but I'm not a homer for bad care. And really the balance that I want to strike here is that, you know, no one is above the law. And even though work circumstances can be challenging and difficult and pressure packed and the institution has all kinds of inadequacies and the expectations are too high and there's too much to do, um, 
I, I don't think that gives a get out of jail free card when there is a significant level of, of gross negligence. And so just as a, a lay person, as a, as a patient, <laughs> as someone who's watched healthcare providers, and I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, um, I think uh, while I understand the pressures, I also think that, um, um, the, the, you know, the, the mantra of first do no harm comes to mind. And um, all those who are entrusted with caring for someone and have some powerful drugs or instruments or procedures that can do harm, um, it just needs to be a repetitive, sobering thing so that we touch first base and second base and third base and home and don't skip over those bases uh, and, and, and cause trouble. And um, so, you know, complications are going to occur even though uh, great, talented, capable healthcare providers are performing the, the administration or the procedure. She could have given her Versed and she have an allergic reaction to it. I mean, those kinds of things happen. But um, the complication that happens where there is uh, running several stop signs, you look at the family and, and I don't think you can say, look, sorry, but we're immune from more justice than usual. I think providers are worried about where the line will be drawn. I think lots of us are involved in cases involving death. We all know that providers are often sued in the civil system with serious allegations, even if no malpractice occurred or if the failure was on the part of the system. Do you feel like creep into criminal litigation now is something that we have to worry about? I don't. Um, I think that this is not necessarily a one-off, but I think it's in a, a very um, limited arena, a, a very limited area. Uh, you know, we have the so-called never events. And, you know, I mean, sp sponges being left behind in procedures or instruments being left behind, um, operating on the wrong body part, uh, this type of medication error. I mean, there's, there's others, um, that the joint commission talks about. And so we talk about never events and, and it's a constant wrestle to try to rein those in. And I get that. And I know mistakes happen to good people. I think that this is a very rare situation. And, and one of the things I think we need to take a, a little bit of a deeper dive on is what needs to be proven. Um, when I listened to the, to the YouTube presentation by, by a nurse, and she did a good job, but she kept talking about, I can't believe this person is going to be charged with murder or, you know, she didn't mean to hurt anybody. And, and there are some nuances in the law that kind of, you know, account for these types of situations. So typically, I mean, a little bit of a, you know, law 101, typically to get into the criminal realm, you have to have some type of intent. Uh, you know, you've, you've in, intended to go in and rob the convenience store, or you intended to punch the person in a, in a, you know, traffic situation. So that's the mens rea or the intent. But there are things that happen in this world where they didn't intend to hurt or kill, but it still happened. And so um, other incidents that kind of came to mind for me, as I contemplated this, uh, would be things like somebody driving while intoxicated and plowing into a car and, and hurting somebody or killing them. Um, we've seen police using some deadly force on occasions when lesser force was indicated. And I'm not a proponent that that happens a ton, but when it does happen, you know, maybe they didn't intend to kill uh, but, uh, shouldn't the actions be evaluated and they didn't intend to kill anybody, but, but they're dancing on an edge of, of behavior and, and in such a gray area that there's a high risk of, of injury to other people. This is what I don't understand. I want to come back to talking about how this mistake was made because I, I kind of get it. I see how this mistake happened. It's probably not as egregious as most people 
who don't work in a hospital system think it is when you say, oh, she overrode 10 different warnings. We can talk about that in one second. But there has been a way in the civil courts for particularly negligent, gross negligence. Like there has been a system for that within the civil courts or punitive damages. There are ways to to really drive the nail in when we think that care was egregiously bad. But once we take it into the criminal, I, I, don't, I just don't understand how that leap was made in this case. And I can't help but think that it was because of the original cover-up with Vanderbilt and that the case had already, there had been an out-of-court settlement with the family and they didn't have anywhere else to go but bring a criminal case. That I mean, that was what my interpretation of it. But I don't understand how that leap happened and whether that's going to be happening more often now that it's an option or that people see that it's an option um, when they're really upset with the care that they receive. You know, I mean, you, it's an insightful point and, and it's, it's obviously a little bit of the elephant in the room, uh, how Vanderbilt uh, handled it, how it was set up. Uh, the nurse was almost, you know, put into a position where failure was was more likely than not in a way. Um, and I hear what you're saying. I, you know, what are the recourses when something like this happens? Typically for justice and reparations, it would be a civil lawsuit, which they didn't have to pursue because Vanderbilt worked out a settlement. It would be a board complaint or something with the licensing board. And and it's my understanding that ultimately she did lose her nursing license. And so the more draconian arena then is criminal. And, you know, the purpose of the criminal court is to um, get justice for the the victim and their family to punish, but it's also to deter and to send a message. So, you know, Texas is notorious for being pretty hard on, on, on murderers. And there's, there's a lot of uh, stories where people are, are willing to, to kill somebody in California, but as soon as they've traveled to Texas, they don't finish the job because Texas will put them to death. And I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna, you know, I'm, I'm not prepared to debate the death penalty or that approach or anything like that, but just, you know, first year of law school, you learn that one of the reasons for the criminal courts is to detour, to send a little bit of a message. So what message is being sent to healthcare providers? Perhaps not that good of one, because I think that the interpretation has been, wow, if I make a mistake and there's a bad outcome, then I'm in trouble, not just uh, from a civil lawsuit perspective, not just even with my license, but also I might serve time. And, you know, is that going to improve care or is that going to drive people from the industry? I mean, I think that it's, it's, you know, these are fair questions and the jury's out a little bit, no pun intended. But, you know, returning to kind of what happened here and why they went with where they went, here, here is the standard. I looked it up for Tennessee. Here's the Tennessee statute. So criminally negligent homicide occurs when a person's criminally negligent conduct results in another person's death. So what's criminally negligent conduct? And this is where we kind of get into the meat of it. It's when the person, so Nurse Vaught or someone in her situation, ought to be aware of a substantial and unjustifiable risk that the result will occur, meaning death, based on their actions and must be of such a nature and degree that the failure to perceive it constitutes a gross deviation from the standard of care that an ordinary person, which in this situation would be a nurse, would exercise under all the circumstances as viewed from the accused person's standpoint. So when I have looked at some of the different things, there are some things that have jumped out where you just, you kind of scratch your head a little bit. And, and I'll just bullet point a few. Um, and this makes it a hard case to defend in, in any court. Um, but first of all, she told investigators that she was distracted by an unrelated conversation with, with a colleague when she grabbed the wrong drug from the medication cabinet. She overrode safeguards that came up, as you mentioned. Um, she didn't coordinate with the hospital pharmacy. I guess there were four warnings or pop-ups that came uh, when, when she was withdrawing the medication from the cabinet. Um, this idea of the medication being a powder when Versed is a liquid, uh, 
she admitted that she found that puzzling. Um, she hadn't given VEC before, so she has to reconstitute it. And then at the top, and I, they have a picture of this in the article that I, that I have uh, printed out, but they have on the top of the lid where I guess she's going to be dealing with it, bold lettering on the medication bottle cap that says warning paralyzing agent. Um, so what we have to do is take the legal template and basically reduce it to this. Would a reasonable nurse have acted this way? Or would this be a gross deviation from what a, an ordinary nurse of reasonable prudence would have done? Um, and this is where the rubber kind of meets the road because people who are listening to this, whether it's nurses or doctors, I think we have to say, would someone kind of an ordinary solid, you know, doing their job, not the best, not the worst, would they have run through all of these different stop signs? I think the Tennessee district attorney, that area's district attorney, and there is kind of a political element here. I guess he's up for reelection. So that's another factor kind of going on. But um, he concluded that uh, this was too many, um, too many red flags and it was gross negligence to not pause for a moment and say, hang on a second, this isn't going very smooth. I either need to get some help or I need to really focus here because first do no harm. And uh, so I think, I don't think it's going to be, okay, now it's open season on healthcare providers. Will it open up a little bit of a door in that regard? You might see a little bit more of it, but how often is this happening? Because if it's happening a lot, then the door needs to open up. If it's not happening enough, it will shake out and, and these, some of these people will start beating the, the charges. So I have, I have two comments about what you just said. One is that I think it's very hard for someone who doesn't work in a hospital system to understand how there is a sense of there but for the grace of God, go I, because there is not one of us. I can guarantee you this. If they say they haven't, they are a liar. There is not one of us that has not made sort of a technology-based mistake. Um, and there are numerous studies about how electronic health records, ordering systems, things like that, how they are actually error-inducing um, in some ways. And in this particular case, I can see how this went down because I block pop-up warnings 20 times a shift. I get a pop-up warning when I order a medication on a 65-year-old man because it could be harmful in pregnancy, right? I get I get interaction warnings on drugs when people come in already taking those two medicines and it's an interaction that's harmless. I I dismiss these warnings every day, countless of them. And there's it's very hard to differentiate between the true alarms and the fake alarms when something, the machine is crying wolf literally all day long. And so it's really hard sometimes when you're not in a mindset that you're already doing something dangerous. Now we know, like when I'm doing an airway or, and I know the vec is, the vecuronium is going in, like I, I know this is a fraught situation. For this nurse, giving a little bit of Versed, like a small dose of Versed before a procedure, that to her probably wasn't anything that was ringing any bells. And so she probably was talking to the training nurse or doing other things and say in an unfamiliar environment saying, oh, this is weird. I got to do an override here. We've been overriding things all week. I'll pull this thing out. Oh, I guess in radiology, they don't have liquid versed. She clearly made mistakes. Mm -hmm. But did it rise to the level of a gross deviation from the standard of care? And that's- Did it rise to a know, criminal the, level? Yeah, that's the, that's the $64,000 question. I hear what you're saying, and I would have actually liked to have defended her. Um, and there's some things. I, it seemed to me that she had skilled counsel, so I'm not I'm not casting any dispersions on that. But there's a couple of key things here. Now, just just to um, you know, kind of mix in a couple of thoughts on what you've just said, because I agree. This, you know, you're in a different area of the hospital, and the pharmacy hasn't connected the order, and I I, I get all of that. I get all of that, but. It, for a layperson and for somebody who defends y'all, I would also say, okay, this is where you start walking slower. This is where the ice might be getting a little bit thinner. And I think safe people start to walk a little bit slower 
uh, when there's some things that are that are happening. And there's a couple of other things that I think are bigger. One, she, the the name of the drug is right there, and she had to look at the instructions to reconstitute this. And uh, I watched the testimony of one of the other nurses from Vanderbilt. And the the prosecuting attorney got her to say, yes, she should have seen the name of this drug. It's right next to the mixing instructions. Next, the fact that she was having to mix it. And then on the lid where it says warning, this is a paralytic agent. To me, you know, I get the, you know, overlooking the the pop-ups or whatever, but you the ice is getting thinner and thinner and it's just the sheer weight of warnings where i think a reasonable nurse at that at some point would say hang on a second here you know that this isn't going very smoothly um and i think that's the slippery slope is she may well have been behaving as you know in a in a proper way and i'll i'll offer a little bit of a defense some ideas for defense here in a second but um I think most reasonable nurses probably would have would have caught this and uh, um, that this wasn't just kind of a mistake, but this was a series of mistakes that are kind of, as I've looked at it, start to border on a little bit inexplicable. You know, how do you have this many where there was just warning sign after warning sign? Um, so a couple of things on the defense, which... Uh, and these are things I noted just from articles and, and other things. Uh, if you YouTube it, you can see some of the different testimony. But here's something that's really important, Gita. And, and it, it really was like a neon sign for me as, a, as an attorney who defends uh, y'all. And that is Nurse Vaught decided not to testify in this trial. And I think that I don't know what her state is. She seemed to be able to give, you know, an interview in the foyer of the courtroom, you know, coherently and, and obviously had talked to the nursing board and investigators, et cetera, et cetera. I think it was a huge blunder for her to not testify in this arena. Now I'm not a criminal defense attorney and it's vogue and chic for criminal defendants to not testify. But let's be honest, um, when you've got strangers on a jury and you don't step up and give any explanation, to cry, whatever you need to do to humanize yourself to them, um, that's potentially um, a, a real strike uh, against her being able to overcome this. So I think that says a lot. The next thing is, um, I don't know the degree of expert support that she had, but there's a couple of important things. First of all, um, I would, even if it was a long shot, but I would have tried to develop the notion that the VEC did not cause the death. Um, there was some, there was some question of that. Uh, and it looks like the defense attorney did get somebody, I think it was a, a neurologist from Vanderbilt, to be able to say that it's possible that her underlying condition, that it did did cause the, the death and that this small amount of VEC did not. I would have played that up more such that it would be an appellate point, meaning if you didn't cause the death, then the criminal negligent conduct didn't cause the death. And I would have really tried to, to emphasize that more. Another thing that I would have done, that the first medical case I ever tried was uh, a, a nurse in a family practice setting who um, a patient was sick and on the folder and on a sticky on the door, it said, this patient is allergic to, I think it was ampicillin, it was some <laughs> penicillin. And she gave him the very thing he was allergic to. And he had an anaphylactic reaction, went to the hospital for a while. They had a board certified neurologist testifying that he had suffered from brain damage. And I was a very young defense attorney. That was my first standalone do it by yourself medical case, probably 30 years ago, 33 years ago. And I remember one of my defenses was, look, ordinary reasonable people can make mistakes. If you're driving down the freeway and you exit Bissonette and you meant to exit Beechnut and you misread that sign, 
That's not negligence. That's just being made of clay and having human fa fallibility. And I, for Nurse Vought, I would have gotten an expert to emphasize that point, that somehow cognitively she got locked in that she had the right drug and really show how that can happen to a normal, ordinary person. And I think that's why there is the outcry by nurses and healthcare providers is what you just said, and that is this can happen. But you know, you've got to be able to explain it to the jury as to how, because it scares lay people that it can happen. And we've got to explain that it doesn't happen that often to the extent of a death. And here's why it can happen. And that may help get the, the, the nurse off. So it, it's heartbreaking to me that I don't think that anything systemic is going to change because of this case. Like the, the sins of a thousand other admins and tech workers and all the people that go into making these systems as clunky and difficult as they are all sort of boils down to where, I mean, Redonda Vaught is the, the tip of that spear. But, you know, in terms of true culpability, there are systemic problems that need to be fixed. But you cannot hold a corporation criminally responsible, can you? Well, you certainly can't put Vanderbilt in jail, right? Exactly. <laughs> we don't have a jail big enough to hold the building. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think um, when we start moving things into the criminal, you know, I think that Redonda Vaught's attorney used a, a phrase that, you know, it was like a, playing a game of musical chairs. And when the music ended, Vanderbilt had a seat, but Redonda Vaught did not. And so here she is now going to serve a prison sentence for... It just seems very hard for me. I, I I believe that this was a completely negligent act. I don't think that it is without precedent. And when there has been precedent in the past, it has been handled in the civil courts with maybe punitive damages or license revoking and things like that. But to make this woman go to jail for working in this system that to my mind, it sets us up to fail every single day. Um, I find that really hard. And I find the prospect of that being increasingly used as, as, a, as a tool thought to be an agent of change is misguided. Because I had said I had two points way back when, but <laughs> my second point at the time was to say that, you know, she self-disclosed her error. She told everybody that could listen about how what happened happened. And do you think that people are going to self-disclose what happened anymore after that? Yeah, I mean, excellent points. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons she should have testified at trial, because I think that it would have softened the jury's hearts a little bit more. Um, jurors' hearts. Uh, it is a, a noble thing to to own up to that. Um, but I don't know that, uh, you know, the, the phrase equal justice under the law comes into mind. And so uh, for people who suffer from this experience, and, and to me, the, the best template is to say, okay, we're talking about this a little bit in the abstract. We don't know the players. We don't know the patient. We don't know Nurse Vought. But let's just pick a 75-year-old who we adore. Um, might be our mother, might be an aunt, might be a neighbor. And they may have 10 months left. They may have 10 years left. They may have 25 years left. And this was a horrific series of blunders. And so when we think of one of our loved ones experiencing this fate, um, it's a little bit sobering. I would not be happy. Oh, no. <laughs> my, my mom's not around, but I would not be no, happy. No, of course not. I mean, you would, want, you would want someone to be responsible. You would want the system to change for the better, perhaps. You would want some sort of, I mean, I'm sure I would want, I've, I've wanted to sue people. My father had substandard care in a hospital. I wanted to sue somebody. The only reason I didn't is because his outcome in the end was okay. But I felt like I would have had grounds. I know that feeling. I know that feeling. I would want to pursue it in the 
I mean, maybe I'd be so angry that I wanted criminal charges, maybe, but I just, I feel like we have a system set up for this. And yep. to now bring it into the criminal now, I think it's going to have a very chilling effect on safety culture in hospitals. I think it's going to have an impact on whether or not people continue to do this work. Yeah. Um, I, I were at the very beginning of it. I don't know how, what the ripple effects will be, but that's, that's the feeling that I have. No, I hear you. And it could, it could, I can't rule that out. It's, it's a tough situation. I've really kind of swung back and forth because I, I, I've always defended healthcare providers and, and, you know, much of it is in, is in a gray area, but usually you can get away with, Hey, this was, this was a reasonable act at the time. They didn't have hindsight information or the outcome wasn't related. You have some watering down, you know, factors. Um, this is, this is a tougher one. And, mm -hmm. uh, um, we'll see what the fallout is. I, I, I hope it doesn't chill people, but, uh, um, I, I, you know, the unfeeling state might say something like, um, we're going to take this one situation at a time. And when it meets the standard, we're going to pursue it and we'll let citizens of the, of the county decide, you know, because it's not just the pursuing of the charges, but you had a unanimous verdict. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, there are some layers of protection. Uh, I think it's hard to get a unanimous verdict in this type of situation. I, again, I don't want to be a, a broken record, but it, I think it was a mistake for her to not testify, to have an expert go against her and her not be able to even get up there and, and counter some of those things. I think that would have given the jury something to kind of hang on a little bit. Mm -hmm. As I understand it, the family didn't ask for them to pursue criminal charges and and didn't really want that to happen. Now, I think, was it the daughter-in-law? There was a member of the family who testified and, and was quite emotional about it, understandably. Um, but I don't think they were, you know, head hunting or looking for it. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's it's just, uh, it's a very challenging situation. And uh, look, the, the other thing I'll say is this, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm not the prototypical, um, you know, defense guy, but the system it, with respect to Vanderbilt and a ton of other places, and and I'm not from Tennessee, and I don't know really anything about Tennessee, but I've always heard Vanderbilt was the Harvard of the South and that their medical system was great. And so we're not talking about some quacks down the street. So it's concerning that they have some systemic issues, apparently. I think those are all over. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm in the Houston, and we've got the Texas Medical Center, which is a preeminent place. And I've seen the sausage being made there, too. So um, this is kind of the way it is a bit. Um, I don't know. Um, I, I think the bottom line is, and, 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 uh, you know, I, I'm not a Hyde Ashbury, um, you know, hippie or anything, but I think it boils down to money. Mm. Um, I think that, uh, I think that that is the creating a crushing pressure on healthcare providers is this, um, machine and the speed of action and the demands and having to pull rabbits out of the hat all the time. I mean, you're like a soccer goalie and you have, you know, on a shift you may see, you know, let's say you see 30 patients and, you know, you make 29 great saves and then there's one that you miss and you're a negligent doctor. I mean, it's just grossly unfair, but they're coming at you fast and furious and there's equipment issues and there's staffing issues. And I get that the setting is almost uh, unworkable. It's gotten to almost an unworkable stage. I think it relates to money and I think it relates to human fallibility. Um, I just know that individual healthcare providers have to take a moment. They have to figure out how to document charts appropriately without taking all the time in the world. They have to be focused and and on their A game when they're when they're clocked in. And and I just um, uh, I you know I've dealt with a lot of healthcare providers who are regularly having problems, whether it's lawsuits or board issues. And I've dealt with others that rarely have problems. And what is the difference? And I think. Certainly, um, there might be a little bit of a difference in skill, but mainly it's on attention, bedside manner, mm -hmm. and just 
having that sixth sense. And like I say, I think Nurse Vaught was walking across a frozen lake. And when you start to hear some cracks and some of these things start mm-hmm. to happen and then there's more cracks, you don't walk faster, you walk slower and maybe you stop and maybe you turn back and maybe you get some help. And I think some people who avoid these nightmares are better skilled at recognizing, hey, Houston, we might have a problem here and I need to slow down. I need to get some help. I need to retrace my steps here. Uh, Let me read this medication again. Let me go back to the ABCs of how to do this. Regardless of the systemic problems at Vanderbilt, read the label, (laughs) you know, I mean, kind of go back to that, absorb that, digest that, not, I have a thousand things to do. So I just hope that this isn't another one I kill today. If we let that happen too, you know, we don't want to have nurses on trial when there's ever, there's a mistake, but we also don't want to have a situation where they're not accountable in a way where it kind of causes them to pause a little bit. Because, you know, I, I think that professionals either do it right because that's the nature of how they are. They either have that level of conscientiousness or skill, or they do it right because they might get in trouble. And like in, in, in Texas, we have protections for emergency medicine doctors. Well, not every emergency medicine doctor that I've defended down here is a Gita Penza who has the integrity and the skill to do it right because that's just how you are. And guess what? having a more difficult time proving things with emergency medicine, I have dealt with some of them that are sloppier. I have dealt with some of them that aren't giving it like you do. And it, it rocks me a little bit. And it's like, are we going to have to get to where it's either carrot or stick and you're going to get the stick if you don't do this right? Is that what we have to do to motivate some people to not make errors that kill other people? Um, I don't think so, but But sometimes uh, we've got to be careful not to take advantage of the trust, you know, and the almost the waiver that's given by by running as many stop signs as Nurse Vaught apparently ran. Well, I would like to see that stick swung a little wider. I hey, I I would. I would like to see the institutions have to bear some responsibility for creating the system and creating the conditions that in enable mistakes as well. I And I want to make the point that nothing that I've said in defense of Redonda Vaught is in any way excusing what happened, nor do I mean in any way to diminish the suffering of this patient. This is a terrible way to die. And their family, the grief, I cannot imagine that when you asked me to imagine it before, it's hard to imagine the degree of rage I would have over this. But being able to sort of step outside it and just look at as a as someone who practices in this environment, you know, I hope I would never make a mistake like that. But I can see how it can happen. Yeah, it is a there but for the grace of God go I. I I and I, I'm sympathetic to it. And that's why I would have liked the shot to help with her defense because I would have said, Oh no, 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 no. You have to testify. I know it's stressful, but they have to see that you are a good person and, and that you regret this and that you have an explanation for it. And then bring in a couple of experts to back up that notion that sometimes there's a cognitive sticking point Mm -hmm. and unfortunately errors can happen and, and get some mercy here. I, I think, I don't know how the judge will be. I don't know what's going to happen. It seems like it's a little bit of a political hot potato, but I'm hoping that she would get something like maybe probation or, or something that's, that's somewhat, um, you know, minimized. Uh, I don't think she deserves to go to prison, you know, for 10 years or anything like that. Um, so let's, let's hope, let's hope hope for that. The other thing that was mentioned was, you know, the option of, you know, the civil lawsuit and then the punitive damages, you know, most insurance companies don't cover punitive damages. So it's, um, on something that's grossly negligent, they don't cover gross negligence for, for the very, you know, reason that, that, this could break the bank, you know? And so, uh, many times the family is, uh, somewhat, uh, um, stuck in that regard, but, you know, reading between the lines here, it looks like Vanderbilt 
did a little bit of a sneaky and I'm not trying to be holier than thou, but they tried to, to, you know, navigate through the raindrops in a, in a whistleblower, uh, caught them. And so it makes you wonder actually how often these types of things happen Mm. (laughs) where really the nurse voicing and speaking up, you know, good for the nurse, but it doesn't change the systemic problem because the, the, the institutions are dancing around it and uh, trying to get away with it or trying not to report it. And I know that brings a lot of pressure on them. And I'm speaking very openly and candidly to you, but it's not going to get any better if we don't get you know a little more integrity in, in these setups. And that frankly may mean less money because I think that's driving the pressure. I mean, when I give speeches to doctors, I show that picture of, of I Love Lucy where she's working in the candy thing and cannot keep up. And the treadmill is, yes, they're falling off and she's eating them and putting them down her shirt and in her hat. I feel like all professionals are kind of at that level and it's just more and more and more. The chocolates are people and something terrible happens when you drop one. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the, I mean, here's the reality. You guys have the heart in your hands, right? I, if I miss a deadline to designate an expert, I can try to figure out a way to cope with that. And ultimately it's money, but you know, healthcare providers have the beating heart in their hands. And so just the focus and the attention and the skill and the intolerance for air is, is there live and in color. Cause you see such a dramatic effect of it not being handled just so. Um, and that's, that's hard. And it's one of the reasons I admire y'all so much is because you are in that arena, you know, and it's the great quote from Teddy Roosevelt, you know, the credit goes to the person who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred with sweat and blood and tears. And that's, I I love defending y'all when I can get in there and say they gave it their best in situations where they didn't and a catastrophe happened it's, it's a challenge. Let's, let's, let's put it at at that as a bottom line. It's a challenge to defend nurse fought, but she should have testified. They should have gotten an expert and, and hopefully the judge will go soft and lenient on, on any kind of sentencing. I don't think she deserves to, to serve some kind of long prison sentence. Well, thank you so much for talking to me about this today, Mark. I always appreciate your expertise and your perspective. Oh, it's my honor. Thanks for listening to this special episode of Doctors and Litigation, The L Word, with one of my very favorite medical malpractice defense attorneys, Mark Calvert. He is always thoughtful and wise, and I hope you've come away with some insights from our conversation. As for the next episode, which was to be the final episode of this series, well, I'm not sure how many times I can record and delete one episode, but this is certainly my personal record. Life has changed a lot for everyone in the last two years, but this podcast and this work is moving more into the foreground for me, and I hope to get it out to you soon. Thank you all so much for your messages and the work that you do. Until next time.